particularly focusing on the words of verse 6, where we read that the people rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. These are the words that Paul highlights um, many hundreds of years later when he writes to the Corinthians. He quotes the last part of the verse that the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. You probably suspect there's more to those words than meet the eye or sound in the ear and you would be right to think so. Now, you'll remember from the morning, just very briefly, that the second commandment has to do with how we worship God. It's distinct from the first. The first tells us to make sure that we only worship God, or worship God alone. The second commandment tells us that we must do so properly and spiritually. It has respect to God's being and to his character, and we mustn't represent him or try to represent him artistically in any way at all using the figure of an animal or a human or an insect or even an angel. Because to try to represent God is to misrepresent God. And he is jealous of his own image and character, therefore make no image of God. Now all that of course is connected with this passage here. And the fact is that God in his own inscrutable wisdom, as he sometimes does, allows a situation to develop which illustrates the commandment and explains the commandment. In other words, it becomes a kind of case study. And, and really the law is full of case studies. The Ten Commandments are first of all given, and then there are case studies to apply these commandments. Now this is a case study in history. As I said, he just allows this situation to unfold. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians that these things happened and were recorded for our benefit, upon whom the last days or the ends of the ages have come. That's quite often the way things happen in the Word of God. For example, there are some details concerning uh, the Lord's Supper and how we should observe the Lord's Supper <coughs> that only become known to us through the letter to the Corinthians because the Corinthians were abusing the Lord's Supper. So again, the Lord in his inscrutable wisdom allows these things to pass and passes censure upon them so that we would be wiser. Uh, studying what these people did, how they went wrong, what was wrong with their thought process, and so on, to warn us and to equip us so that we won't fall into the same kind of evil ourselves. And we're never to think that we can't. And this is certainly one of those incidents where you think, well, I'm in no danger of that, really. I hope we saw enough in the morning itself to tell us that this is not as far away from us as we think, but as we look at the passage itself tonight, we'll see that it's far nearer to us than perhaps many of us realize. That's why the Apostle says, 
Let him who thinks he stands therefore take heed lest he fall. You may have a calf in your life without realising it. Well then, let's fast forward from the giving of the Ten Commandments just six weeks to this incident before us here. That's all. Six weeks between the command being thundered out by God on the one hand and being so clearly broken by Israel on the other. Now, it's uh, harder to imagine a greater contrast, really, than the contrast that you find between what's happening on the mountain top and what's happening at the foot of the mountain. In that respect, it's a little similar to the Mount of Transfiguration, where the presence of God was so clear at the top of the mountain and the presence of the devil was so clear at the foot of the mountain. You have something similar here. At the top of the mountain, you have quite a unique situation. After the Lord had spoken the Ten Commandments to the people, he told Moses to come up the mountain on his own. And Moses ascended there, and he drew near, we're told, to the thick darkness where God was, and he drew into a period and experience of intimate fellowship with God that wasn't replicated by anyone else at any other time. It's described in the book of Numbers as God speaking to Moses face to face over a period of 40 days and 40 nights. And during that time, the presence of God was so real on Moses that it actually transformed his skin. And people were aware when he came down from the mountain that he had been with God, which should be true in another way, of course, of ourselves, perhaps in our countenance. But it should certainly be something that people see when we are with God. Now, in that 40-day period, Moses was receiving the rest of the law from God. These were the laws governing the nation, how the nation was to be governed as God's chosen nation and as a light to the Gentiles, bringing the truth of God to a needy and dark world. And as well as that, he was receiving the laws that would govern the worship of the people, the institution of a new priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, Aaron himself to become the great high priest. He was to see a, a vision of the tabernacle as God would have it built. He was given detailed instructions about every item of furniture that was to be in that tabernacle. The bronze and the golden altars, the uh, golden candlestick, uh, the showbread table, the Ark of the Covenant, the curtains, the railings, all these things. Instructions for sacrifice and worship, the clothing of the priests, the clothing of the high priest, all that was communicated to Moses in detail by God during that period of 40 days and 40 nights. So that was a time of glorious fellowship between Moses and the Lord. Uh, sometimes when we wonder at how angry Moses was when he came down from the mountain, as well as justifying that anger simply in connection with the fact that there is such a thing as righteous anger and that these events should have provoked righteous anger in anybody who saw them. We shouldn't forget 
the effect of such a contrast on a soul like Moses when he has been 40 days in purity and holiness to suddenly see an outbreak of what is really satanic, devilish and hellish. It is no wonder that his own soul was filled with such anger. But just as Moses is ready to come down with all these laws and the two tablets containing the Ten Commandments, which have now been written by the God who spoke them, engraved with his own finger, just before he comes down from the mountain, God tells him that a situation has developed at the foot of the mountain, which must have been a shock uh, for Moses to hear. Get down, God says to him, because your people... Isn't that interesting how God speaks of his own people? It's as though he's again dissociating himself. Your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, he says, have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly, very quickly, six weeks, out of the way which I commanded them and made themselves a molded calf, worshipped it, sacrificed to it, and said, This is your God, Israel, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, it's after hearing that terrible news, and I'm sure he doesn't really understand what exactly that's going to look like, uh, that he begins his descent. Halfway down the mountain, he picks up Joshua, whom he had left halfway up the mountain, and as they gradually come near the foot of the mountain, they begin to hear uh, the sound of the camp before they see it. And Joshua, of course, is a military man. He is a military commander. And he assumes that the noise that he's hearing is the noise of war. And uh, Moses, of course, knows that it's not the noise of war. He's in effect saying, listen, uh, Joshua, you're not hearing the sound of victors or the vanquished. If you listen carefully, what you're hearing is singing. And it was a kind of carnival atmosphere that had developed at the foot of the mountain. And I suppose the fact of the matter is that nothing could really have prepared Moses or Joshua for the sight that they were going to meet at the bottom of the mountain. Lo and behold, there was a golden bull on a pedestal. And Around it, there were crowds, hundreds, thousands of people, many of them half-dressed, which is what the Hebrew makes plain to us, and also, as the Hebrew tells us, they were out of control, wildly dancing under the guise of worship. And it's amazing, really, that Moses could see such a sight as that. I mean, it's a very different people that he had left six weeks ago. And he comes back and he finds this. And as I said in the morning, it's almost unthinkable, it's almost unbelievable, really, that the people who had just <coughs> gotten the Ten Commandments six weeks before, in such circumstances of holiness and fear and dread that they actually said to Moses, please, you speak with us, but not God, that they should have reverted to this. 
as I said in the morning, the key to understanding it and the key to recognizing its connection to you and to me is to understand that it's a breach of the second commandment, not the first. This isn't about idolatry as we know it. It's about false worship. And these are two different things. So let's look tonight. Uh, we can't obviously look at the whole thing, but I just want tonight to look with you at the sins of the people and the sin of Ale. The sins of the people and the sins, the sin of Ale. Now, first of all, the people. It's quite obvious from the passage that the desire to have such an image rose in the hearts of the people. And as usual, it's through their leaders and their representatives that they speak to Aaron. And you'll notice how aggressive uh, their language is in verse 1. Come, they said, make us gods that shall go before us, or a god that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Now, the real questions are, what exactly are they wanting? And, of course, why are they wanting it? First of all, what? Well, it sounds, when you read it, as though they're simply wanting other gods. And I suppose if we've read it like that in the past and thought about it like that, we've wondered, how can, how can that really be possible? I mean, it's... It's perhaps too far-fetched in, in a way to think of them as wanting other gods altogether. Well, that's true. It's not other gods they were looking for because, strictly speaking, what they say later is, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. What they were wanting was not another set of gods instead of Jehovah. They were wanting, of course, as we saw in the morning, a physical representation of Jehovah, a God they could touch a God they could handle, a God they could see, and a God that would allow them to worship in the way in which they wanted to worship them. We can't get over the fact that as soon as they make God into their image, they squeeze Jehovah, if you like, into their own mould, as soon as they do that, they start approaching him in a different kind of way altogether. <coughs> There's a reason for that. Uh, you first of all change in your own mind the nature of the God you're coming to, and then of course you can come to him in any way you want. So they want an image or a representation of God. That's why it says, this is your God, in verse 4. The last part of verse 4, they said when the calf was finished, this is your God, O Israel that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And again, God himself, when he's speaking to Moses in verse 8, God says, They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. So it's an image of Jehovah. You'll notice too that it's not a plurality of gods they want because they only make one. And once one is made, they are happy with this god. Happy with it. Happy with the image of the bull. As well as that, you'll notice in Psalm 106 that we sang that they changed 
their glory. Now that's not a reference to their own glory. It's a reference to God as their glory. Because that's what God is. We glory in God and he is our glory. But the psalmist tells us that they changed their glory into the image of an ox. You notice what the psalmist is saying there. He's not telling us that they divorced themselves from Jehovah. But rather that they recreated Jehovah in their own likeness. That, by the way, is something we're always doing. I mean, you can forget gold and silver. That's not necessary. But we are always in the business of re-imaging God and recreating God. I remember saying this to you not so long ago. It's, it's, a, it's a phrase I constantly hear from people. People say, what kind of God do you think God is? And people will very often say, well, I like to think of a God who... And then they'll rattle off a few things that they like to think of God as being and doing. <laughs> the response to that is always, who cares what I like to think of God? Who cares, frankly, without being unkind, what you think of God? I mean, it doesn't matter one little iota what you think of God in terms of what's real or not. Because God is who he is. And God is precisely the one that he has revealed himself to be and no other. It's never a question of what God you like to think of, or me. These things don't matter. They do matter in the sense that the more I misrepresent God, the more astray I am. The same is true of you. The more you change Jehovah's character, the more you take away from his holiness and his glory, and the reality of what he is, the more you are condemning your own soul to everlasting destruction. You're making a false God, by changing the image of the true one. That is what the psalmist says has happened here. They have changed their glory as one who ought not to be imaged into something they can handle and therefore control. Although an idol is meant to be a representative of your God, it's astonishing that once you put your hand to it, you start to control it. You can carry it about, you can use it, to affirm yourself and your choices and your chosen lifestyle and so on. And again you'll notice in verse 5 that when Aaron sees it, in other words when he sees the people pointing at the end of verse 4 and say, this Israel is your God. We read in verse 5 that when Aaron saw that, he built an altar before it and made a proclamation. And listen, listen to Aaron's proclamation. Tomorrow, he says, is a feast to Jehovah. The name Lord here is the covenantal name of God. It's his personal name, Jehovah. Tomorrow, he says, when we gather round this calf, make no mistake, he says to Israel, we will be worshipping Jehovah. Whoever among you thinks that you're worshipping anything else, that is not to be so. It is a feast to Jehovah, and through the golden calf we will worship him. So really they're wanting an image of their invisible God to lead them. That takes us to the next question, which is always, why? Why? Well, why does anybody want it anyway? We thought about a crucifix this morning. Why does anyone want a crucifix? on which to see uh, Jesus hung. Why does anyone want that? Well, the Bible here gives us several reasons why they want that. 
But in a way, you can all sum them under the heading of impatience. They're impatient. It's all to do with delay in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain. Now, there is no delay. A delay means that some time is set. No time is set. God simply told Moses to go up. Moses has gone up. It's no delay. They feel like it's a delay. It's not a delay. God's got his timetable. He's never slow. He's never too quick either. In God's timetable, everything is just on time. Now, I've said a lot about delay and how God tests us with delay, and I, I, I don't want to say too much about it again, but when things don't move and don't advance in the way that we expect them to, we do tend to become impatient. And that's why these things are always a test. You'll notice that Moses is, how long is he on the mountain? Forty days and forty nights. There's your number forty again. Forty years in the wilderness was a period of testing and probation. Forty years Christ was in the wilderness, tested. Tested by God, tempted by the devil. When you're tempted by the devil, you're always being tested by God. Forty, forty, forty. Every time you find it, probation, test, to see what is in their hearts. And that's what God is doing here, by keeping Moses for precisely that length of time. To see what the people do. How do they conduct themselves? without the person that they've been relying on. Maybe too much? Maybe too much? So there's certainly a test in that. And of course, when God tests us, like I said, there's always an opportunity for the devil. And here they are, impatient. They're impatient. And it's obvious, too, that they've become man-centred. For the people, it's all about Moses. When they saw that Moses delayed coming down, they gathered to Aaron and said, Make us a God that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Even crediting him with the Exodus. It's one of the strange things in connection with our idolatry that, as I mentioned under the first commandment, our primary idol has become self since the fall. We sit on the thrones of our own hearts. But we tend to idolise man, male and female as well, very quickly. And even in the church there is always a tendency, and the devil is quick to feed in it, to put people in the place of God. You'll remember in Corinth that these congregations in Corinth were being divided because of people's affinity with either Peter or with Paul or with Apollos. And of course Paul has to say, well, who is Apollos and who is Peter? And who am I? He says but ministers of God who are merely sent to minister the truth. And he was concerned that people were taking the place of God. That's always possible. And even if God uses someone in your own life, and it may not be a minister, it may not be an elder, always make sure that that person does not become God to you. Make sure that the word of God is always your guide. When you begin to follow a person too much, when that person errs, you'll follow that person into error. And there are times when God comes to you with precisely that thing. You know, it may be somebody you've admired or somebody you've listened to, and then suddenly they say there's something that's contrary to the scripture, and you say to yourself, oh, well, but it must be right. 
But as the word of God commends to us the example of the people in Berea who took what Paul preached and went straight back to the scriptures of the Old Testament with it to see whether these things were so. Was Paul not annoyed about that? Paul was most certainly not annoyed about that. The word of God itself says, take everything to the law and take it to the testimony. Now, this tendency to elevate people to a position where they ought not to be is just as much a characteristic of Reformed churches as it is of other churches. And we've all got to beware of it. Let the word of God be your constant companion. Let it be the only rule to direct you, as your catechism teaches you, the only rule to direct you how you are to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. These people feel that Moses is indispensable for bringing them to the promised land. They want to get to the promised land. They're tired of the wilderness. They want this promise of milk and honey. They want the promise of, well, a land that they can live in and that they can call their own. And they're impatient until they can get it. And when we're impatient, we're prone to think wrongly and to do things we ought not to do. They've invested too much in Moses. They're now willing to move themselves. But they need an image of God with them. Some kind of token that God is present with them. Where, you say to yourself, is their reliance upon the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire? I don't know. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is that they're wanting not just a God to lead them, but a God that they can actually meaningfully approach every day in a visible, tangible form. There's always something attractive about that kind of worship. I mean, if you set up a kind of worship that is sensuous in that way, a worship that appeals to senses, and if you, if you walk into, well, perhaps again, maybe Roman Catholic churches or other churches too, everything is designed to, um, to appeal to taste, touch, to the nose, you smell, there's incense. Of course, in, in our Presbyterian churches, we are very word-based, sacrament-based too, but word-based because we believe that's what God has appointed. The only things that are there for our senses in that respect are the Lord's Supper itself and to the extent that we have at baptism. But the rest is a medium of word. The spiritual blessing of God upon the truth as it has been revealed in Christ Jesus. But there's an astonishing draw to what you can smell and touch and see. And you can walk into these churches and you have gorgeous vestments, incredible paintings, which of course include paintings, sometimes of the Father and of the Son and representations of the Holy Spirit. And there's an appeal to it. It appeals to thousands upon thousands and millions of people. And that, of course, takes us to the other reason why they want this, because they've become used to it. Now, that sounds very strange. What do you mean that they've become used to that kind of worship? Well, I'm sure you've often heard the saying that it was far easier to take Israel out of Egypt than to take Egypt out of Israel. We know that saying. That saying is true. Sad to say we know it ourselves in our own hearts. It was far easier to take us out of the world as Christians than it was to take the world out of us. 400 years the people of God were in Egypt. They managed to retain their spirituality and their culture for a good length of time. 
but these boundaries crack. And of course, these boundaries will only crack if you want them to crack. And the fact of the matter is that Egyptian life began to influence how they lived their lives in Egypt. And by the time these 400 years were coming to an end, it was a very backslidden people, apart from a remnant who were calling for deliverance, praying for some kind of Moses and a return to the promised land. And it's not just Egyptian life that affected them, but Egyptian worship affected them too. You know, false worship affects you if you're exposed to it. When you're exposed to it for a long time, you get used to, oh, you get used to anything, don't you? Um, you get used to any kind of behaviour if it's around you long enough. And the same is true in worship. The fact is that Egyptians always used to represent their gods through images. These gods, as usual, were powers cosmic powers but they were represented their ordinary mode of representation was a bull or something like that, like the bull of Apis or the bull of Isis the bull was a powerful image of God because it's strong and because of its power of fertility and unsurprisingly that allowed a degree of sexual immorality and license to come into their worship and of course to the natural carnal mind that will always make it more attractive. So they're used to that. Now the fact is that we know from scripture that that impacted their own worship. Joshua tells us in uh, chapter 24 of his book, that's just after they've gone into the promised land, he warns them about reintroducing uh, practices of heathen worship, which are, which are always somehow attractive. <clears throat> Joshua tells us um, that, they, that they were to be careful not to adopt. It would help if I was in the right book, I'm in the book of Judges. Um, they were to make sure not to adopt what they had adopted in Egypt. He said, um, put away your gods. That's actually an amazing statement itself. It implies that some of the people have perhaps carried with them, like um, like Rachel had at one point. She had certain uh, little figures of gods that were in her father's house, and uh, Jacob allowed her to have them. And it's only when Jacob was going up to Bethel that God said, see these gods that are in Rachel's possession, get them out of the house. But here Joshua has to say, um, serve the Lord in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river, now that's always the Euphrates, that's a reference to Babylon, and in Egypt. Now are you hearing that? The gods which your fathers served in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it seems evil to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So some of the church of God had incorporated the worship of Jehovah through a bull-like figure in Egypt. And lo and behold, here they want it back. Who do you think wants it back? Well, with every kind of situation like this, there's always a distinction between the people who have the idea, the people who really run with the idea, and the people who just tag along. And you'll always have people too who are not actually involved in it really at all. 
even if they're not perhaps saying or doing all that much, which may be a sad thing in itself. For example, when Moses comes down later and he says, who is on the Lord's side? We're told that the whole tribe of Levi just right away came alongside. Now that tells you immediately that they had nothing to do with this. I know it's sometimes spoken of as the whole camp and all Israel, but if the scripture itself makes distinctions within that universality, respect these distinctions. Here you have a whole tribe that were not involved in it. They were probably aghast at what was happening. Now it's interesting that the Lord actually rewarded them because when God um, appointed a priesthood on Mount Sinai, he appointed the tribe of Levi to be priests because of their faithfulness to God at this point. So he rewarded that faithfulness. But my point is that there are people who are not happy with it. You've got that. You've also got the people that God executed through the Levites. And we're told that they are 3,000 people. In one way, that's a lot of people. In another way, it's not. What I mean by saying it's not is that 3,000 people is about a half of 1% of the adult males in Israel at that time. 3,000 people around about a half of 1% of adult males. Why just that number? Because they're the enthusiastic promoters of what happened. God makes distinctions. He does make distinctions. Even when we're all perhaps guilty to one degree or another of whatever it is, God knows precisely the degree to which we are guilty of it. The judge of the earth always does right. We're never to doubt that. The judge of the earth always does, does right. Even afterwards, after these 3,000 ringleaders were dealt with by Levi, who was... Um, so faithful that even if the ringleader was connected to himself, it didn't matter. He executed on God's behalf. God still sent a plague, which still didn't affect a huge number of the people. I would guess, too, that they were more or less enthusiastic participants in the things that happened. Who do you think did promote them? <coughs> well, here I'm just going to make a suggestion. But it's not a suggestion without basis or without evidence. When Israel left Egypt in the first place, we're told that a mixed multitude followed them. It's an interesting expression in the Hebrew, a mixed multitude. There were people of different ethnicities, different cultures, who for one reason or another, well, maybe they were just reading providence, they thought that God was with this people, even if they had been a people enslaved for 400 years. And when they were leaving Egypt with signs and tokens of God's displeasure upon, upon that most powerful empire of its day, they said, we're coming with you. We're coming with you. But we're told later in the book of Numbers that when people started to complain, it was the mixed multitude that started to complain. You'll always notice in the church that very often the people who begin to complain about things are people who are not really all that committed. They're not really all that interested. They're never perhaps found regularly at the prayer meeting. They are never the ones who are where the Lord's people gather. They're not the ones who speak enthusiastically about the Lord or his work. 
They don't seem to have the interests of the kingdom at heart, but lo and behold, they're the first to pounce on something that they don't think is great or something that they don't think is right, or how about doing things this way, and how about doing things that way? They're never content, but they're always complaining. They're always complaining as long as things are being done the Lord's way, until they get things done their own way, but even that doesn't actually satisfy them. The we're told that the mixed multitude fell a craving and fell a lusting. That seems to be what characterises the mixed multitude all the time. They're always looking for something, never satisfied with what the Lord has given them. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was the mixed multitude that was involved in this too. Now friends, when the gospel net goes out, Jesus tells us in the parable of the dragnet, the dragnet is a special kind of fishing net that's dropped down from the top it's gathered round in a sweep, and Jesus tells us that it gathers all kinds of fish, good and bad. And once it's brought to the shore, the fish are separated. But they were all caught in the net. There's many a person that responds to the message of the gospel in insincerity and not in truth. Time and trial reveals them, exposes them to be, to change the figure stony ground here or so. Um, Seed that fell on thorns. It's, it's, the, it's the wilderness that reveals us. You know, people used to say that in the past when a person began, they would say, well, the expression in Gaelic was the, the wilderness will test him or her. The wilderness does test. Test us, tests us all. And certainly the mixed multitude were quick to begin to complain. Now, it's a sad thing when people are led in the church by the wrong people. Why has this situation developed? I mean, where is Aaron? Well, we'll answer that question in a minute. But why has this situation been allowed to develop? Well, it's an amazing thing, but Jeremiah tells us, or God tells us through Jeremiah, when everything's falling apart in Jerusalem, and in Jeremiah chapter 5, and in verse 30, um, God says this, that an astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in this land. <coughs> what is that? Well, there's, there's a lot of evil going on in Jerusalem around this time before the Jews were taken captive. But what was the astonishing and horrible thing? Well, the prophets, he says, are prophesying falsely. That's one thing. And the priests are ruling by their power. So the, the, power, the pre prophets are keeping the priests in their place with power. And he says, my people love to have it so. My people love to have it so. <clears throat> the church is decadent and corrupt, he says, and my people are all right with it. But what will you do, he says, in the end thereof? When these things run their course, he says, what will you do? When the gospel is eventually lost and when it's trodden underfoot. So what's going to happen then, once the golden earrings are broken off and they're gathered together, as the Hebrew may indicate here, in a bag, and Aaron then arranges to have it molten, and an image made possibly of wood and then covered over with gold, what's going to happen is that there is a, a new way of worship. 
new way of worshipping God that they'll take with them to the land of milk and honey. Let's leave the people there for a second. And I want to turn to Aeon. Now, what can we say, really? I mean, what can we say? It's so sad to see a, a man of God who was honoured with the position that Aaron was just about to be honoured with, anyway. Um, it's so sad to see him fall in the way in which he does. A man who is um, set apart with Moses, stooping so low. And I suppose, in a way, we're equally alarmed by what he does do and what he doesn't do. Let's just take it as it happens. The first thing is that he allows himself to be intimidated. Now, certainly if you're an elder in the church, in the house of God, you can't allow yourself to be intimidated by people. It doesn't matter how they speak to you or what they say. You can't do that. You just mustn't allow it. They said, make us gods that shall go before us. He should have said, no. But he doesn't do that. Now, there's no doubt that it wasn't easy, right enough. When we're told that the people gather together to Aaron, the Hebrew indicates an idea of intimidation, gathering with a sinister purpose. It's a bit like how Korah, Dathan and Abiram gathered in front of Moses not too long after this to try to actually subvert the whole government of Israel. <coughs> the same kind of thing is going on here. But he has to learn, if he's in office in the church, to control the church under the guidance of God's word. The second thing is that you notice that Aaron makes no attempt to stop proceedings. Now, I would like to think, and I suppose there's a charity in us all that would make us feel well, surely he, he, he said something. But my own take on that, right or wrong, is that had Aaron taken some kind of initiative to stop what was happening, the scripture would have recorded it in his defence and to his honour. And I think the fact that the scripture is silent in that matter is telling us that Aaron just didn't do anything to stop it. Surely was shocked by it. I'm sure he thought for a while how to respond to it, but he doesn't speak against it. Why not? Well, because, no, it doesn't matter who we are whether we're an authority in the Church of God or not, whether you're a husband or wife, whether you're in control of a family, whether you have a position in the workplace or whatever it is, he chose the path of worldly wisdom. The path of worldly wisdom was to avoid trouble by allowing a thing and trying to modify it and control it. Makes a lot of sense, according to worldly wisdom. Aaron just let the thing go, but control it. Control it. Make sure it takes place in such a way that the minimum damage is done. It's what weak ecclesiastics always do. It's what they always do. And they think they somehow distance themselves from their responsibility like that. If you're a father, be a father. If you're a mother, be a mother. If you're a husband, be a husband. If you're a wife, be a wife. If you're an elder, be an elder. If you're a minister, be a minister. What's there on here? What is he? He's trying to, trying to behave like a leader while all the time not leading people in the path of righteousness and truth. But he thinks he is by modifying it 
and control it. The next thing he does is he actually supervises the process. Well, of course, that was necessary to control it. He's the one who has the idea to gather the earrings. I wonder if by that, again, it's a charitable interpretation to put in it, is he trying to put the people off? Because these are expensive things that were doubtless given to them by the Egyptians. We're told that many Egyptians showed them kindness, gave them back things in gold and silver because of the 400 years that they had suffered in slavery, which is an interesting thing in connection with debates that do go on about reparation and so on. They, they lavished gifts on them from what they had suffered. But Aaron's probably saying, well, look, if I, if I make this difficult for them, if I make this venture that they're trying to do, if I make it costly for them, it's going to hit their purse or hit their pockets or their wallets, they might not be so keen on doing it. Oh, you can't underestimate somebody who wants to do a bad thing. And you can't underestimate the zeal of someone who thinks that they can worship God better than God's way of worshipping himself. Don't underestimate the zeal of such people. Don't underestimate their power of invention. Don't underestimate their zeal and enthusiasm for doing such a thing. Out came the earrings from the men and the women, at least those who were involved in it. I'm sure, like I said earlier, there are plenty who are not. The next thing he does is he makes absolutely sure that this feast is Christianized. He baptizes it, or he Christianizes it. Tomorrow, he says in verse 5, is a feast to Jehovah, not to Apis or to Isis or to any other bull or calf or ox or ass, but it is a feast to God tomorrow. And if you insist on having this image, well, when you worship, let this image represent to you the great power of the God whom we worship. The God who is on this mountain, let it speak to you of that. And when you put it like that, you can almost buy it. Unless you're wise and spiritual enough not to buy it. Let it be a feast to Jehovah. After all, you know, when you describe a thing in a certain way, you can almost say, oh, well, you know, providing... Providing the bull speaks to the people of God's power, it's a secondary issue. It's a secondary issue. God is still at the heart of this worship, even if it's done this way. Secondary issue. That's how everything is baptized. That's how every illegitimate activity that goes on in the church is baptized and accepted because it's not important, it's secondary. And by saying it's secondary, what you're really saying is that God doesn't have Secondary to you because, I mean, what does God care, really? If a bull is used in his worship, what does God care if we use our own songs, if we play our own instruments, and make as much noise as we like? Does God care about that? People will say, all God cares about is your heart. You see? Your heart. That sounds good. It's actually a load of nonsense, and worse. But Aaron himself is able to pass <laughs> this off as an event that takes place for Jehovah. But the thing is that this new form of worship suddenly took on a life of its own. We read in verse 6 that they got up early in the morning. Why do you think that's written? 
Oh, well, on the one hand, could be written just simply because it's a fact. But why do you think they did that? You may notice that when people start going out of the way, or even when people are still of the world, they're far more enthusiastic for false worship than they are for true. Backslidden people are always like that. They'll jump at something that's different or novel, especially if it appeals to the senses. Let me put it another way. If Aaron had said, there's going to be a prayer meeting tomorrow, I wonder if who would have been up early for that. Or if it was the Lord's Day the following day, I wonder who would be up early for that. We often see that kind of thing when, when people make their own ways of worship. Now everyone here, and everyone who's honest, will acknowledge that there's no mandate in the Bible for things like Easter and Christmas. There's, they don't appear. I mean, they're just not there. But of course, people do appoint these days as holy days. Now, the Roman Catholics did that at first, and it's been carried through, and it's seeping again into Reformed churches. So they observe uh, a day, for example, like uh, um, December 25th, as set aside for the observance of Christ's birth. And um, they'll say to you, well, we're not keeping it as a holy day, really. And then you discover there's a watch night service, for example, 12 o'clock. And so these people at 12 o'clock will make the journey, uh, usually to watch a nativity play, performance of some kind, to sing certain songs and so on. And then the next Sabbath comes around, and uh, there's no one there welcoming the day in at 12 a.m. at night. No one staying up till 12 p.m. I was reading just the other day of the Harris blacksmith, Gowen Herrick, who um, so loved the Lord's Day that he never went to bed on Saturday night until he had taken in the Lord's Day at 12. And he never went to bed until 12 had passed on the Sabbath night. Now, I'm not saying that you have to do that or I have to do that. All I'm saying is that that's very interesting. It's all very, very interesting. Why is it that we can stay around and go to a service at 12 midnight for a human performance, but not on the day which God has appointed? Why do you think that is? The answer is here. Golden calf tomorrow. Let's get up. It's all exciting. It's all different. They can hardly wait to get up in the morning. Zeal for what's not right and so little zeal for what is I wish and pray that the Lord would examine ourselves for our own zeal in everything that God has actually appointed and asked even when we sing to sing with enthusiasm and with heart to long to sing the psalms of God to pray gladly in each other's company as God has appointed it not to be complaining about the ordinances of God but to be thankful for them not wanting what man devises, but to be happy with what God appoints. So they get up early the next day. Again, you'll notice how quickly it degenerates. How quickly it degenerates. We're told in the words of our text that the people sat down to eat and drink. That's a, a religious feast. They, it's their own appointment, again. I mean, I don't know exactly how they feasted. But we're told that they're up to play. That's a euphemistic word. 
In other words, we're all supposed to know what play means. When Moses comes down, we're told that the people did not restrain themselves because Aaron did not restrain them. Verse 25, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained because Aaron had not restrained them. The word unrestrained there means to loosen and it's used normally of loosening clothing. Is that not an interesting thing? And there's wild dancing around the calf because the plural use of the word dancing is sometimes a Hebrew technique for just conveying wild enthusiasm. And the shame of it is so great, we're told, interestingly enough, I don't know, were people observing this or was it a fact that the heathen came to know about it? Because when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, because Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. In other words, there were people who looked on and thought, oh, right, is this, is this the people that were delivered by God? And you sometimes find that, sad to say, in buildings that are set aside for God's worship, you go along to them, you go in and you look and you listen and you say, oh, right, is that, uh, is that Christianity? Is that what Christianity looks like? Is that what Christianity sounds like? <clears throat> It's a shame, a shame, like the chapter says, that we misrepresent God instead of representing God. Now Moses confronts him, which is what every true Christian should. And he says to him in verse 21, Moses says to him, verse 21, what did this people do to you that you brought so great a sin on them? You'll notice he, he doesn't beat around the bush. He says, you brought this sin on them. But he's willing to say, what did the people do? I think that's a good way of rebuking someone because he, he's not dodging the fact that this is Aaron's call. But at the same time, he's saying, look, is there a reason or an explanation for all this? And you can't help see the difference between the way the Bible records what Aaron did and the way Aaron records it himself. The Bible says that Aaron told them to get the earrings. The Bible says that Aaron actually made the calf, the moulding of it, and he supervised the final engraving touches on the calf. It tells us that Aaron built the altar, and it tells us that Aaron dedicated the feast day to God. But when he answers Moses, he puts that, he puts that very, very differently. He says, don't be angry because you know the people that they're set on evil. And then the next thing he says is correct because the people said, make us gods because we don't know what's happened to Moses and so on. And I said to them, if you've got gold, break it off. They gave it to me and I cast it into the fire and this calf came out. That's almost laughable. In fact, there's a sense in which this is laughable. It's as though the thing made itself, you know. This calf came out. Did you not know anything about it, Aaron? Are you telling us you knew nothing about its shape and its size and its dimensions, its form and its engravings? Did the thing just happen? Well, that's what we always do, I'm afraid. When we do sin, and Aaron knows that he sinned. He may have been a fool in one way, he's not a fool in another way. He knows he sinned. 
But it's strange when you come to confess, sometimes you, you justify yourself, even in your confession. Oh, he says to Moses, you know what the people are like. Moses could have said, well, who are you telling? Of course I know what the people are like. And I know what some of them especially are like. And I wonder why they ever came with us. But does that excuse you, Aaron? Well, he says, you know what the people are like. And I wonder when he says that this calf came out, is that, way, is that his way of saying, you know, before I knew where I was, here, here was a calf. That's the best construction I can put in it. Otherwise, it's just trying to wash his hands. Just like you do when you say, oh, well, um, my wife doesn't understand me. That's why I went with somebody else. It's what happens when you say, my parents didn't love me, and that's why I do this, that, and the next thing. Or the eldership treated me badly, and that's why I don't do this, that, or the next thing. The calf just came out. Aaron was rewriting the event to suit himself. He was confessing his sin, but only half confessing it. And Moses points out, and the Lord points out, that God sees it differently. Aaron did not restrain. Aaron did not restrain. You know, when we confess our sins, we're supposed to really confess them. When David, famously for nine months, was blaming everybody for his own adultery and murder, <coughs> blaming Bathsheba, blaming Uriah the Hittite, blaming circumstances. And even though he was going to church and saying and doing the right things, he was miles away from confessing. I'm sure he confessed, but he didn't really confess. Just like you can sometimes confess, and you're not confessing. You confess to God, and you're not confessing. You can confess to others, and you're not confessing. People can say to me, they can say, oh, you know, I, I messed up there, or whatever. And it's not a confession. Because if they were to really itemise what they'd done, it would always be, oh, but you know, they did that, you know. And then the next thing, they said that, would you believe that? And then this, and then I did that, you see. And the, the that that they did is not really as bad as the thing they actually did. No, nine months later, though, the word of God came to David with power, stripped him right to his soul, against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and in thy sight done this evil. So that when you speak, even by judging and chastising me, you are clear in judging still. However you will wield the sword in my home or in my family, I justify you in doing it. It was my sin, and I confess it before. That's how you need to confess your sins before God. We must come like children into the presence of God. And this wasn't good enough for Aaron. It wasn't good enough for Aaron. And so God would have to find his way of dealing with that. Now, I've gone on too long, and in any case, we need to leave it because God has to deal with this, and he does deal with it in a rather miraculous way, which we'll see next time. Let us pray. O Lord, enable us to understand that the ways of the world are different from yours, that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and your ways are higher than our ways, and that we need not think that what we think should please you, 
is the thing that pleases you. And enable us to be content, therefore, with the worship that you have given us. To be content with a worship that is in spirit and in truth. Which is content seeing the one who is invisible and seeing him by faith. Save us from these forms of worship that lead to that kind of behaviour where the music is so loud and so human, where the behaviour is so carnal and so sensual. And teach us, O Lord, to discern the spirits and to prove all things, to cleave to what is good and to resist what is evil. In the precious name of Christ, O Lord. Amen. Psalm 51, in conclusion. Psalm 51. <coughs> we'll just sing the first three stanzas of the psalm, which are, of course, David's opening cry of real confession, when at last he confronts his own sin and its consequences. The opening three stanzas we stand to sing. <coughs>